0: A young child, and this is a three-year-old brain that we modeled, and you see that by the end of that six-minute call, and that's really not as bad as it might look because you see the red area only gets partway through the eye of the adult, right? The one that we're concerned about is this one with the young child, and this is a three-year-old brain that we modeled, and you see that by the end of that six-minute uh, the peak radiation, yellow and red, is is getting all the way into almost both eyes. And again, this is one call, and it's not going to kill anybody. It may cause any biological effect whatsoever for one call, or two calls, or three calls. But the question is, what's the cumulative impact of this kind of exposure? How do we evaluate it? How do we study it? The problem we face is that right now, We're in the midst of an experiment on my grandchildren and your children. And we don't have anybody to compare them with. We don't have a control group in science. When you are given a drug, it's usually been studied where some people get the drug and some people don't get the drug and they're called the controls. And then you see whether or not those who got the drug are healthier than those who did not. And when you get results, you can conclude if there is a difference between the exposed and the control group that your drug has worked. Well, when it comes to mobile phone radiation, we've lost our ability to have a true control group. Even now with young children, more than half of young children today have access to these devices. And I read this morning uh, in The the Age that something like 13% of children age two can order their own app results, you can conclude if there is a difference between the drug. It's usually been studied where some people get the drug and some people don't get the drug, and they're called the controls. And then you see whether or not those who got the drug are healthier than those who did not. And when you get results, you can conclude if there is a difference between the exposed and the control group that your drug has worked. Well, when it comes to mobile phone radiation, we've lost our ability to have a true control group. Even now with young children, more than half of young children today have access to these devices. And I read this morning uh, in The the Age that something like 13% of children age two can order their own apps. I mean, I, I can't, I find it hard to imagine how a parent would give a child age two a device which was allowing them to order their own app. So where are we with respect to research on infants, toddlers, and young children in pregnancy? Well, there's almost no research underway, which again is why I'm delighted to be here to talk with you about what could be developed. Um, Believe it or not, this is the (laughs) iPoddy. Now, this is not a joke. I have actually talked to grandmothers, I'm one of them. My grandchildren did not have an iPod, I promise you. Uh, Their father sometimes acts like he did. A lot of people today take devices into the bathroom all the time. But there are actually young children who will not go to the potty without their iPad. Does anybody know anybody like that? Any kids? Yes. Is that amazing? And nobody's even thinking about about this, as what it might mean for for radiation exposure. And Parent Magazine called the iPad the best babysitter. I mean, if you need an iPad for a babysitter, you need to rethink having children. I understand understand giving cranky children something to distract them on a long car trip, but please put it on airplane mode. Don't think that you're doing something good for your child if you hand them a device and it's a two-way microwave radio. Now, I want to show you something that you may find hard to believe, but of course, anybody who's been around babies lately knows that this is what they do with anything you give them. That's how they learn things. They put them in their mouths. But this is something that you have to watch to believe it.
1: Sabía que pasaba mucho tiempo en el piano, pero yo dudaba que podría llegar tan lejos con una aplicación. Así que Jesse tiene 9 años y como la mayoría de los niños de su edad, era bastante difícil para mí hacerlo invertir en cualquier cosa, especialmente con el aprendizaje de nuevas habilidades. Solo deseaba que si pasaba tanto tiempo en su tablet, entonces al menos podría hacer algo beneficioso. Y entonces encontramos a simple Piano. Desde el momento en que pusimos la aplicación en el piano, así fue, se convirtió en su nuevo videojuego, excepto que está aprendiendo un nuevo pasatiempo con el que espero que siga. Me quedé completamente impresionada cuando me sorprendió en mi fiesta de cumpleaños. Fue increíble. Simple Piano me hizo la madre más feliz del mundo.
2: So, dear you are my listeners, Okay, we had a little technical difficult a while ago and we, we had to come back on live, okay? It's no big issue, no big problem, just a little minor technical drift, okay? So, as you can see, it is not just the food which is sick in the people, but also the radiation of the cell phones, the iPads and many other gadgets, tablets and many other, okay? And these are the things the state, the deep state, the elite, keep hidden from the people. okay? And it is not too far, it is in public domain and public media platforms where you can see. But as I say, most times they hit these things in the back of reports and news and put these things at the bottom of the list where people can't bother to go so far to dig for the real fact okay for the real truth that is benefit to them okay plus they have all different kind of ways and means to dazzle people eyes okay big professors debate lecturing over it confusing the people saying all kind of things all these is just part of a world conspiracy plot to keep the people eyes blindfolded brainwash the people tell the people lie of mental chain on the people' brain. Okay? Having people thinking what they want people to think, doing what they want us to do, eating what they give us and tell us this is nutrition and good for us. How oh, many of these things you see they give us over the years and recommend to school, elders and many other things that is nutritious and healthful that right now they have on the list and ban? How oh, many of these drugs, medicines, people have been consuming for years, decades. Now they just wound up on the ban list or hear some new research come out, this isn't good for you, this do that to you, this do this to you, they know a long time. They all know the truth and they hate it, okay? It's all part of a world conspiracy plot, deep state elite funding. And as we continue.
0: Thank you, Dr. Axelrod. I'm going going to talk with you this evening about cell phones, the hidden truth. And I have to, I have a confession. When I started looking into this issue, I owned three cell phones. I still, now I own two. And I thought that people who were concerned about cell phones uh, were not very credible because many of those expressing concerns about the issue, frankly, are not scientists. And I thought that the whole issue really was one of those things that people get carried away about. Uh, But then my first grandchild was born. And like um, many of you, I was thrilled with how smart and brilliant he was. And at age eight months, he was fascinated with cell phones. And I thought it was really great that he could push numbers or buttons and get the phone to do things. And I thought, this is such an intelligent child. And then I began to look at what we knew or didn't know or in the United States had preferred not to think about when it comes to cell phone radiation. So I ended up at the end of the secret history, of the war on cancer, writing about the world's largest study ever done on cell phone radiation in a population, the Danish cancer society study. And that study of course, finds no risk associated with cell phones and brain cancer, as in fact, most studies find no risk associated with cell phones and brain cancer. That study had defined a user as someone who made one call a week for six months. So it looked at users compared to non-users, and uh, the average use of a cell phone had been about five years, and concluded that cell phones were safe, and the headline made it around the world, and it was that headline that made me think cell phones were safe as well. Well, I'm going to show you why, in fact, we don't have uh, such a clean bill of health for cell phones today and also tell you that there are simple things you can do to protect yourself. Uh, We are not telling you to stop using cell phones because that would be ridiculous. We're telling you to use them in a more sensible manner. And I'll get to that at the end of my talk today. Environmental Health Trust is a nonprofit that I created in order to educate communities and health professionals and develop sensible policies to reduce avoidable environmental health risks. And we're currently working on cell phones as our priority. Cell phones, in fact, are two-way microwave radios. How many of you uh, who have not read my book realize that a cell phone emits microwave radiation? How many of you knew that before today? All right. A very small number of people, okay? In fact, um, the cell phone and the microwave oven uh, operate um, at very similar frequencies. Now, the difference is that a microwave oven uses of a wa- thousand of watts of power and can boil a cup of water in one or two minutes. A cell phone uses less than one watt of power and is far too weak to cause the movement of molecules to resonate to boil water. Um, but we're using cell phones at the same frequency as a microwave oven for thousands of minutes a month, and unfortunately thousands of hours a lifetime. And although the cell phone signal is too weak to cause anything like the ionizing damage that we get here from x-rays, it turns out that cell phone radiation does have biological effects, contrary to the assumptions that guide much regulatory policies on cell phones today. Evidence for developing disease treatments, such as those given at this wonderful hospital, are based on animal studies, toxicology, and human studies. We look at animals, we study how they respond to things, such as a deficiency of vitamin D, and we see what can happen if, if we give them more vitamin D with respect to controlled studies that tell us, well, it looks like vitamin D is an important determinant of health, which indeed it is. We then do trials in humans or observations in humans, depending on the circumstances, and we conclude, as in recently we have with respect to vitamin D, that there are some real benefits to be obtained from ensuring that people get adequate amounts of vitamin D among other nutrients. So that's how we develop disease treatments. But when it comes to identifying the causes of disease, we take that same evidence, namely toxicology and, and human studies. And the debate has often been turned on its head. The debate is usually framed. Do we have statistically significant proof of damage to humans yet? And if we do, then we conclude that there is a harmful relationship. Well, unfortunately epidemiology is the study of patterns of disease in time and space is suited to telling you about the past, not the future. That's our dilemma. Epidemiologists look at populations that have been exposed or case control designs, telling you about past exposures and current disease state for the most part. Um, I will explain why of course we can't rely on epidemiology when it comes to cell phone policy Um, given the fact that we have 100% saturation at this point. And since we can't always conduct human studies, and it's unethical to conduct experiments on people, we have to look at models and measurements of exposure, along with toxicology and case studies, to fill the knowledge gaps. So I'm going to talk with you today about models and measurements and toxicology and give you a few comments about epidemiology at the end, and I'm sure my colleagues will provide more insight from that at the end. Let's just look at the models we have of the brain. Um, These images are taken from work originally done for the cell phone industry by Professor Om Gandhi, with whom I am now collaborating to develop further refined models of brain absorption of microwave radiation from cell phones. Now you can't see here very clearly, but this is the head of a five-year-old and the cell phone radiation pretty much gets about three-fourths of the way through the brain of a five-year-old. This is the brain of a 10-year-old. And this is that of an adult. Um, Now, actually, this isn't an ordinary adult. This is an adult that goes by the name of Sam. Sam stands for standard anthropomorphic mannequin. And Sam was about six feet two, weighed about 220 pounds, and had an 11 to 12 pound head. I think there may be one or two people in this room with a head of that size, but the majority of you is much smaller than Sam. This is why, by the way, the Indian government has recently reissued its recommendations about cell phone radiation as well, recognizing that most Indians uh, in India have much smaller heads and therefore will will tend to absorb much more radiation than the standards have been set for. Now, these standards were developed by Professor Gandhi, who as a service to the industry in the 1990s, evaluated phones. That was what his laboratory did. He was the chairman of the Department of Electrical Engineering at the University of Utah, and they developed the models for testing exposure to cell phone radiation. Um, He has parted ways with the cell phone industry because since the late 1990s, he's issued a series of papers, most recently some of which I've written with him, in which he says, look, We know cell phone radiation gets more deeply into the brain of children. It's foolish not to come up with protective policies that recognize that we need to protect children's brains because their exposures will be greater over a longer period of time, and we do not know what the consequences of that will be. This is Sam in a a different cross-sectional picture. And these data were provided recently by the Cell Phone Industries Institute in Switzerland, Niels Kuster and his team. And what this shows you is that the estimated absorption of the cell phone into the brain of Sam. And you can see here this big sort of bowling ball size head as opposed to, again, this younger child. And interestingly, these tests are conducted with a 10 millimeter or 15 millimeter spacer, every millimeter away from the brain reduces the exposure to microwave radiation by 15%, right? So this spacer actually will substantially reduce the estimate of radiation. But the most important thing here to realize is that there's larger areas of exposure and greater average exposure into the young versus this big, heavy set guy. Now, I'm going to talk to you now about some of the toxicology. The blood-brain barrier is a very interesting phenomenon that's been well studied um, for for almost half a century now. The original work was done in Russia and subsequently then in the Office of Naval Research, and I talk about this in my book, Disconnect, where um, a curious researcher decided to inject animals with a fluorescent dye and noted that if you sacrifice the animal after the injection of dye, uh, the animal's brain did not turn colors, but the rest of the body did. This was evidence that the brain has a protective barrier that shields it from absorbing things from the bloodstream. Then in the early 1960s, um, Alan Frey working for the office of Naval research, got the idea to study pulsed digital signals from microwave. Remember, This is before cell phones ever existed. His research showed that if you exposed an animal, after injecting the dye, exposed the animal to a pulsed digital signal microwave, that the animal's brain turned a fluorescent color. Um, The year after he did that research, he was visited by his supervisor in his annual review. And he was told, you know, this is really interesting research. And if you want to continue working here, you're going to stop it. And he, and he did until releasing his data and files to me when I was preparing my book, because later on, other researchers who I'm going to show you here in Greece have done other work on the blood brain barrier. And not only have they worked on the blood brain barrier, and I'll show you this in a moment. Uh, but they've also done work on memory and learning deficits and cranial and postcranial skeletal variations. I'm just going to concentrate right here on you can see this nice, healthy, intact cell. And this is one that has been exposed to a pulsed digital signal like those from a cell phone. And this is a model. Again, these are data developed by um, Greek researchers with whom I'm going to be meeting uh, in Istanbul in um, late May. Um, and they have shown that you can disrupt the blood brain barrier significantly with exposure to uh, cell phone like radiation. And this is 900 megahertz and 1800 megahertz. And, um, the disruption is basically about, about twofold. Now, why is that important? Well, the brain needs protection. We don't want the brain to be absorbing more pollutants. So think about this in terms of your own exposures living in the modern world. You can't avoid toxic pollutants. It's part of the price of society, of success, so to speak. But if you're constantly being exposed for hours a day to this kind of uh, exposure, you may be uptaking more pollutants. Interestingly, the work was originally done by a neurosurgeon, Life Salford at Lund, and his work was directed to the following problem. He was trying to treat people with brain cancer. He wanted to be able to deliver chemotherapy agents into the brain. And because the brain naturally does not take things into it, he was having difficulty. And he hit upon the idea of using a pulsed digital signal to enhance uptake into the brain. It worked. It works as a way to enhance uptake of chemotherapy agents into the brain. Well, if it enhances the intake of chemotherapy agents, it also is going to enhance the intake of other agents. Other studies have been done with uh, pregnant animals. And this is again from the Wheeler group. um, And this has been published in um, the peer reviewed literature. Several different publications have shown effects of 1800 megahertz, which is the 2G signals on uh, DNA damage and lipid damage in both pregnant and non-pregnant uh, rabbits. And basically you can show increased DNA damage in adult rabbit brain after 15 minutes a day for seven days. 15 minutes a day for seven days. Um, these effects here um, you can see the control and the exposed in the different groups and these are somewhat technical slides for public talk and I'm not going to go into the details here except to say that What this is making clear is that we're getting significant effects on DNA. And as everyone knows, DNA is the basic building block of all cellular material. It's in the nucleus of all of our cells is our DNA. And our DNA is why we're here today, because even if we've had damage, our DNA, when it's healthy, repairs that damage. It tells cells to stay in line. It sends proteins out to fix damage that has occurred and this is showing that seven days exposure to 15 minutes a day with a pregnant uh, and non-pregnant animals, um, and these are the two control groups, gives you a significant increase in various measures of DNA damage. Um, So I think it's very important to note um, that we have different measures in animals showing damage to dna showing the formation of free radicals and things that we know predict cancer risk that's what we have experimentally when i say we however i should be very clear the united states today has no active research underway on cell phone radiation and human health and only one major project underway at the national toxicology program on animal health and that study was recommended by the National Toxicology Program Board of Counselors, which I used to be a member of, in 1999. In 1999. And the study started in 2010. Right? So we've had a disconnect in the United States, in Canada, in a number of countries between what some scientists have warned about and the way we have been treating cell phones as these benign devices. This is further work on DNA-based modifications, this time looking at white rabbits, not the real white rabbits, not Alice in Wonderland. And interestingly, uh, you get um, a, a, um, increased effects in, the, in some groups, uh, and this is looking at 8 hydroxy guanine adducts, but you don't have it in, in, under all circumstances. So, A hydroxyguanine addicts, you don't see much of an effect, but here you see effects on DNA based modification. Other studies have looked at cell death, apoptosis, at the brain and eye tissue of adult and pregnant rabbits and their newborns. And again, only one week of exposure. Now let's be fair. Rabbits don't live that long, right? A week in a rabbit's life corresponds to uh, years in ours but we use the rabbit model to study the brain and the eye because it's been well um, developed and validated. Other studies have found hypothyroidism, basically shrunken thyroid and apoptotic bodies, cell death occurring in the thyroid after 20 minutes a day for three weeks. And here are some of the slides showing the follicular unit of the thyroid gland and cells forming in the follicular wall. So you're seeing clear evidence of apoptotic changes right right up here, after exposure to cell phone radiation. Uh, These photomicrographs um, also show some immunoreactivity in the thyroid samples. This is the control and this is the exposed, right? So there's positive immunoreactivity in the interstitial connective tissue, which is a fancy way of saying that cell phone radiation is interfering with the thyroid, which is of course the body's policeman. The thyroid regulates temperature, metabolism, hormones, a lot of essential processes. And it's looking like cell phone radiation can interfere with that. Now, just as a reminder of the context, identical twins, which are as close to, as we have to um, clones in human nature, start out with pretty much identical chromosome bands. These are, twins that come from one egg that splits in two, right? And these are the chromosomal bands of identical twins at age three. And this, uh, fluorescent pattern here shows you hypo and hypermethylation, but it's simply an indication of the activities of certain genes and methylation patterns of those genes and chromosomes. these, these chromosomal bands. They look pretty close to identical at age three, but by age 50, they don't even look like they're related to one another. They don't even look related to one another. Look at 1 and 17, even 12. Now, what is that telling us? They start out with from the same egg that splits in two, right? After 50 years of life, they don't even look like they're related to one another. This is a clear sign. We know that genes give us the gun, but the environment pulls the trigger. It's the gene environment interaction that really determines most of health and disease patterns today. We know this as well from epidemiologic studies that have been done in Scandinavia, where they have uh, followed people throughout their lifetimes and looking at twins in Scandinavia, even identical twins do not get the same cancer except 27% of the time. And they have concluded therefore that three out of every four cases of cancer is an environmentally determined cancer. Now the environment doesn't mean chemicals. It means anything exogenous to the body with which you interact over your lifetime that affects the chances that you will get a disease. Environmental factors play a major role in determining breast cancer risk, although we don't fully understand what many of those environmental factors are. So another reason why the environment is known to be a cause of cancer, is of course looking at other studies in epidemiology. We know that children who are adopted, again from studies in Scandinavia, develop the risk.
2: Okay, my listeners, so you pay a key listening ear to these informations because there's a lot of research and information coming out of all departments showing the close link with radiation and cancer. Okay it's all part of a world conspiracy plot deep state funding elite they know long time they know they know that that will happen to the people but in order for they to profit make money they choose to go along with the project it's nothing clearer than that okay who who cannot see to it? Who cannot accept the truth? You're just living into a denial, lie, or you're living into an unbelief matrix. Okay? And if you think radiation of cellular phone, iPads, tablets, and many more is a danger, well, we have worse coming because. If you speak with the scientists, the doctors, the engineers, the wizards, the chemists, the computer chemists, all of them, the programmers, they will tell you the world is moving from Android and these. They are coming up with a new system they call quantum. How much do the people know about quantum technology, quantum computer, scientists, and programmers? Electronics Wizard, they will tell you quantum computer is the best. Quantum things is best. Differing from quantum generate a lot of heat. Very high-tensity amount of heat. What else does quantum technology does that they don't not, that they does not want the people to know? Well, you heard it here on the World Conspiracy Talk Show and conspiracy radio up in chaos box with your host andrew p and i'm about to expose you to a higher level of technology okay so check this out
3: Quantum computers use the natural world to produce machines with staggeringly powerful processing potential.
4: I think it's going to be the most important computing technology of this century, which we are really just about one-fifth into.
3: We could use quantum computers to simulate molecules to build new drugs and new materials, and to solve problems plaguing physicists for decades. Wall Street could use them to optimize portfolios, simulate economic forecasts, and for complex risk analysis. Quantum computing could also help scientists speed up discoveries in adjacent fields like machine learning and artificial intelligence. Amazon, Google, IBM, and Microsoft, plus a host of smaller companies such as Rigetti and D-Wave, are all betting big on quantum.
5: If you were a billionaire, how many of your billions would you give over for an extra 10 years of life? There are some simply astonishing financial opportunities in quantum computing. This is why there's so much interest, even though it's so far down the road.
3: But nothing is ever a sure thing, and dealing with the quirky nature of quantum physics creates some big hurdles for this nascent technology.
6: From the very beginning, it was you know, understood that building a useful quantum computer was going to be a staggeringly hard engineering problem, if it was even possible at all. And there were even distinguished physicists in the 90s who said this will never work.
3: Is quantum truly the next big thing in computing? Or is it destined to become something more like nuclear fusion, destined to always be the technology of the future, never the present? In October 2019, Google made a big announcement. Google said it had achieved quantum supremacy That's the moment when quantum computers can beat out the world's most powerful supercomputers for certain tasks.
7: They've demonstrated with the quantum computer that it can perform a computation in seconds what would take the world's fastest supercomputer years, thousands of years, to do that same calculation. And in the field, this is known as quantum supremacy, and it's a really important milestone.
3: Google used a 53 qubit processor named Sycamore to complete the computation a completely arbitrary mathematical problem with no real-world application. The Google quantum computer spit out an answer in about 200 seconds. It would have taken the world's fastest computer around 10,000 years to come up with a solution, according to Google scientists. With that, Google claimed it had won the race to quantum supremacy. But IBM had an issue with the fun
2: Okay, so you see the link between quantum computers and quantum technology and Google... Microsoft Bill Gates Connection. Okay. And as I tell you, notice the report said, scientists said, or they said. Okay. Listen carefully.
3: Arbitrary mathematical problem with...
7: And it's a really important milestone.
3: Google used a 53 qubit processor named Sycamore to complete the computation. A completely arbitrary mathematical problem with no real world application. The Google quantum computer spit out an answer in about 200 seconds. It would have taken the world's fastest computer around 10,000 years to come up with a solution, according to Google scientists. With that, Google claimed it had won the race to quantum supremacy. But IBM had an issue with the findings. Yes. IBM, the storied tech company that helped usher in giant mainframes and personal computing, it's a major player in quantum computing. IBM said one of its massive supercomputer networks this one at the Oak Ridge National Laboratories in Tennessee, could simulate a quantum computer and theoretically solve the same problem in a matter of days, not the 10,000 years that Google had claimed. Either way, it was a huge milestone for quantum computers, and Silicon Valley is taking notice. Venture capital investors are pouring hundreds of millions of dollars into quantum computing startups, even though practical applications are years or even decades away. By 2019, private investors have backed at least 52 quantum technology companies around the world since 2012, according to an analysis by Nature. Many of them were spun out of research teams at universities. In 2017 and 2018, companies received at least $450 million in private funding, more than four times the funding from the previous two years. That's nowhere near the amount of funding going into a field like artificial intelligence. About $9.3 billion worth of venture capital money poured into AI firms in 2018. But the growth in quantum computing funding is happening quickly for an industry without a real application yet.
6: It is not easy to figure out how to actually use a quantum computer to do something useful, right? So nature gives you this very, very bizarre hammer in the form of these, this interference effect among all of these amplitudes, right? And it's up to us as quantum computer scientists to figure out what nails that hammer can hit.
3: That's leading to some backlash against the hype and concern that quantum computing could soon become a bubble and then dry up just as fast if progress stalls. Quantum computers are also notoriously fickle. They need tightly controlled environments to operate in. Changes in nearby temperatures and electromagnetic waves can cause them to mess up. And then there's the temperature of the quantum chips themselves they need to be kept at temperatures colder than interstellar space, close to absolute zero. One of the central tenets of quantum physics is called superposition. That means a subatomic particle like an electron can exist in two different states at the same time. It was and still is super hard for normal computers to simulate quantum mechanics because of superposition.
6: Now it was only in the early eighties that a few physicists such as Richard Feynman had the amazing suggestion that if nature is giving us that computational lemon, well, why not make it into lemonade?
3: You've probably heard or read this explanation of how a quantum computer works. Regular or classical computers run on bits. Bits can either be a one or a zero. Quantum computers, on the other hand, run on quantum bits or qubits. Qubits can be either one or zero or both, or a combination of the two at the same time. That's not wrong per se, but it only scratches the surface according to Scott Aronson, who teaches computer science and quantum computing at the University of Texas in Austin. We asked him to explain how quantum computing actually works.
6: Well, let me start with this. You you never hear your weather forecaster say, well, you know, there's a negative 30% chance of rain tomorrow, right? That would just be nonsense right? The, the chance of something happening is always between 0% and 100%. Okay, right? but now quantum mechanics is uh, based on numbers called amplitudes. Amplitudes can be positive or negative. In fact, they can even be complex numbers involving the square root of negative one. So, uh, so a qubit is a bit that has an amplitude for being zero and another amplitude for being one.
3: The goal for quantum computers is to make sure the amplitudes leading to wrong answers cancel each other out, and that scientists reading the output of the quantum computers are left with amplitudes leading to the right answer of whatever problem they're trying to solve. So what does a quantum computer look like in the real world? The quantum computers developed by companies such as Google, IBM, and Brighetti were all made using a process called superconducting.
6: Okay, and this is where... You have a chip the size of an ordinary computer chip, and uh, you have little uh, coils of wire uh, in the chip, uh, you know, which are actually quite enormous by the standards of qubits. They're you know, nearly big enough to see with the naked eye, okay? but you can have two different quantum states of current that are flowing through these coils that correspond to a zero or a one, and of course, you can also have superpositions of the two. Now, the coil can interact with each other uh, via something called Josephson junctions. Okay, so they're laid out in roughly a rectangular array, and the nearby ones can uh, talk to each other and thereby generate these very complicated states, what we call entangled states, uh, which is one of the essentials of of quantum computing. And the way that the qubits interact with each other is fully programmable. Okay, so uh, you can send electrical signals to the chip, to say which qubits should interact with each other ones at, at which time. Uh, and now, the, in order for this to work, the whole chip is placed in a dilution refrigerator that's the size of a closet, roughly, and it cools it to about a hundredth of a degree above absolute zero. That's where you get the superconductivity that allows these bits to briefly behave as qubits.
3: In IBM's research lab in Yorktown Heights, New York, the big tech company houses several quantum computers already hooked up to the cloud. Corporate clients such as Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan are part of IBM's Q network where they can experiment with the quantum machines and their programming language. So far it's a way for companies to get used to quantum computing rather than make money from it. Quantum computers need exponentially more qubits before they start doing anything useful. IBM recently unveiled a 53 qubit computer the same size as Google's Sycamore processor. We
5: think we're actually going to need tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of qubits to get to real business problems. So you can see we need quite a lot of advances. Doubling every year or perhaps even a little faster is what we need to get us there. That's why it's 10 years out at least.
3: Quantum computing, we need to see some big advances between then and now. Bigger advances than what occurred during the timeline of classical computing and Moore's law
5: oh, we need better than Moore's law. Moore's law is doubling every two years. We're talking doubling every year with occasionally some really big jumps.
3: So once quantum computers become useful, what can they do? Scientists first came up with the idea for quantum computers as a way to better simulate quantum mechanics. That's still the main purpose for them, and it also holds the most money-making
4: potential. So one example is uh, the caffeine molecule. Now, you're like me. <laughs> You've probably ingested billions or trillions of caffeine molecules so far today. Now, if computers are really that good, right? Really that powerful, I and mean, we have these, these tremendous supercomputers that are out there. We should be able to really take a molecule and represent it exactly in a computer. And this would be great for many fields, healthcare, pharmaceuticals, creating new materials. Uh, creating new flavorings, right? Anywhere where, where molecules are in play. So if we just start with this basic idea of caffeine, it turns out it's absolutely impossible to represent one simple little caffeine molecule in a classical computer. Because the amount of information you would need to represent it, the number of zeros and ones you would need, is around 10 to the 48th. The number of atoms on the earth are about 10 to 100 times that number. So in the worst case, one caffeine molecule could use 10% of all the atoms in the earth just for storage. That's never going to happen. However, if we have a quantum computer with 160 qubits, and this is a model of a 50 qubit machine behind me, you can kind of figure, well, if we make good progress, eventually we'll get up to 160 good qubits. It looks like we'll be able to do something with caffeine on a quantum computer, and it's never going to be possible on a classical computer.
3: Another potential use comes from Wall Street. Complex risk analysis and economic forecasting. Quantum computing also has big potential for portfolio optimization. Perhaps the biggest business opportunity out of quantum computing in the short term is simply preparing for the widespread use of them. Companies and governments are already attempting to quantum proof their most sensitive data and secrets. In 1994, a scientist at Bell Labs named Peter Shore came up with an algorithm that proved quantum computers could factor huge numbers much more quickly than their classical counterparts. That also means quantum computers, if powerful and efficient enough, could theoretically break RSA encryption. RSA is the type of encryption that underpins the entire internet quantum computers, the way they're built now, would need millions of qubits to crack RSA cryptography. But that milestone could be 20 or 30 years away, and governments and companies are beginning to get ready for it.
5: You know, for a lot of people, that doesn't matter. But for example, for health records, if health records could be opened up, that could compromise all kinds of things. Government communications, banking records, sometimes even banking records from decades ago, contain important information. You don't want to so the problem we've got is we don't really know when quantum users will be able to do this, or even if we'll ever build one big enough to do this. But What we do know is if you don't update your cryptography now, all the messages that you send over the next few years, the ones you in history could potentially be read. What this means is, for example, if you're a Cisco selling that you equipment, you are going to need to offer quantum safe encryption as this option in the very near future. Because even though it doesn't look like you need it right away, if your product doesn't have it, then the it does, guess which product gets both.
3: One big issue facing quantum computing, other than increasing the number of qubits while keeping things stable, is that no one actually knows the best way to build a quantum computer yet. The quantum computers at Google and IBM and other companies show off are very much still experiments. There's also a big education gap. Not many people are studying quantum computing yet. China is pouring billions into quantum computing education, and the U.S. Congress passed a law in 2018 called the National Quantum Initiative Act in order to help catch up. Quantum computing
5: capable people will be a, a rare commodity, which means that you want to invest in them now. You want to be hiring people with quantum computing knowledge, not necessarily to do quantum computing, but you, you want that intelligence in your organization so that you can take of buck when it shows up. Now, China, with its promise to put 10 billion dollars in it, really upping the states in terms of the number of Chinese quantum physics, PhDs, that are going to start appearing. And you know, if that you know, restoration or life extension happens to be property of the Chinese government, what does that do? world economy? That's much more powerful than making war.
3: Other experts have compared Google's announcement to Sputnik, the Soviet satellite launched into orbit in 1957. The beach ball-sized satellite was the first man-made object to orbit the Earth. But Sputnik didn't really do anything useful, other than prove launching something into space was possible.
4: Many people are surprised that um, where exactly we are. For those who are just getting started, they like to make noise about vacuum tubes and Sputnik and things like this. Um, But let me give you some numbers. Um, IBM has had quantum computers on the cloud for three and a half years since May of 2016. We're not in any sort of Sputnik era. We're not landing on the moon. But for those of you who like space history, I think we're probably well into Mercury or, or, or Gemini.
2: So, as you can see, listeners, there it is. You see what Quantum, you see what Quantum Computer is all about, quantum technology, all world conspiracy, deep state elite funding back. And if you doubt me, pay attention to this short information.
8: Passwords are like the cockroaches of the internet. They really, despite all of our best efforts, they're very hard to kill off and companies have been trying to do it for years. The average office worker in
9: the United States must keep track of between 20 to 40 different username and password combinations. With so many passwords to remember, it's no wonder why many of us use the same ones over and over, or have a running list of passwords saved somewhere on our computers, phones, or notebooks. Passwords are a very serious and expensive security risk. It's why companies like Microsoft, Apple, and Google are trying to reduce our dependence on them. But the question is, can these companies break our bad habits? Passwords by themselves are just not that secure. In a 2015 interview with John Oliver, Edward Snowden explained just how easy it is to crack a typical password.
6: Bad passwords are one of the easiest ways to compromise a system. For somebody who has a a very common eight-character password, uh, it can literally take less than a second for a computer to go through the possibilities and pull that password out. I think we're going to
10: have a no-passwords future because it just gets rid of a lot of problems. You never know when the bad guy has your password at the end of the day. That's Kevin Mitnick.
9: He's pretty well known in the hacker community.
10: I started off many, many years ago as a black hat hacker. I wasn't hacking to cause harm or to make money. It was all about the intellectual challenge, curiosity and seduction of adventure. And then I pushed the envelope and I pushed it so far, I became the world's most wanted hacker and I was pursued by federal law enforcement agencies. And they eventually caught up with me and I ended up serving five years in federal prison.
9: Nowadays, Mitnick says he's an ethical hacker, assisting companies to identify their security vulnerabilities and helping to fix them. And finding your usernames and passwords, it's much easier than you might think.
10: There's a site out there called weleakinfo.com. So what weleakinfo is, it's a site that has aggregated a bunch of data breaches. And so what happens is the data, namely your username and passwords, that are on these data breaches, get aggregated because they're publicly available. And there's sites that we leak, uh, like We Leak Info, they kind of make it like a Google where you can actually just put in an email address of yourself or a friend, and all the prior data breaches that contained a, your username or your email address, it actually reveals the password.
9: All it takes to find the site is a quick Google search, and users can get access to more than 10,000 data breaches for as low as $2. And it's not even the only website to offer these services.
11: Simply put, passwords are not fit for
10: purpose for today's net. That contained your username or your email address, it actually reveals the password.
9: All it takes to find the site is a quick Google search, and users can get access to more than 10,000 data breaches for as low as
2: $2.
9: And it's not even the
2: Okay. Okay, my listeners. So you get that. So unscrupulous people out there selling our code password to unscrupulous people. And they are selling it at cheap as $2. You get that? $2. That's how easy it is just to break your code. Who built this company with this software can do this form of damage? Who would give license to such a company? Which government entity funding? Who sign on that paper for that company to have that right to do that so that they could sell even people things online? It's all part of a world conspiracy.
9: Only website to offer these services.
2: Simply put, passwords are not fit for purpose for
11: today's network economy. Uh, they present challenges to consumers in the sense that they're either hard to remember or they're too easy to remember, in which case they're easier to mimic and steal. For businesses, they re- represent a huge liability in the sense that the vast majority of data breaches are caused by passwords, either passwords that slip from an employee and expose a database or allows other bad actors to get into their systems. So passwords you know, present challenges across the board.
9: A report that looked at 2013 confirmed data breaches found that 29% of those breaches involved the use of stolen credentials. In another study, researchers found that the average cost of a data breach in the US was more than $8 million. And even when passwords are not stolen, companies can lose a lot of money resetting them.
8: Our research has shown that the average fully loaded cost of a help desk call to reset a password is anywhere between $40 or $50 per call. Generally speaking, a typical employee Contacts a help desk about somewhere between six and ten times a year on password related issues. So, if you just do the simple multiplication of six to ten times times $50 per call times the number of employees in your organization, you're talking significantly hundreds of thousands of dollars or even potentially millions of dollars a year. And that's just really the IT operations cost. That's not really factoring necessarily the productivity cost that gets lost by the user having to wait for maybe 20 minutes, 30 minutes, or even longer to actually have the password issue resolved to their satisfaction.
9: In large companies like Microsoft, Apple, and Google, with upwards of 100,000 employees each, these costs can quickly add up. A former Microsoft executive told CNN in 2018 that the company spends more than $2 million each month in help desk calls, helping people to change their passwords. With the details of our personal and professional lives increasingly residing in the digital realm, those costs are likely to grow. The first use of the computer password dates back to the early 1960s at MIT. At the time, computers were these huge contraptions that could only manage the work of one person at a time. This limitation frustrated Fernando Corbato, who came up with the computer time-sharing system. CTSS was an operating system which distributed a computer's processing power so that multiple people could use it at once. This naturally led to the issue of privacy. So Corbato created the password. Ironically, the first computer to use passwords was also the first one to be hacked. One of the researchers in Corbato's lab found that he needed more time to complete his work than the weekly hours allotted to him. So he printed out all the passwords stored on the system and used them to log in as his colleagues. The conventional rules of password creation adopted by companies, federal agencies, and universities were attributed to a document released by the National Institute of Standards and Technology in 2004. The document suggested that users should have a minimum of eight character passwords, and that those passwords should include at least one uppercase letter, one lowercase letter, one number, and one special character, and be changed regularly. But in 2017, NIST rewrote the password rules. This time, the agency suggested using long, easy-to-remember phrases instead of crazy characters and only changing your password if it might have been hacked. Passwords have come a long way since the 1960s. With innovations such as fingerprint readers and face scanning on smartphones, verifying your identity now often goes beyond just entering a password. This comes in the form of two-factor and two-step
11: authentication. There's three forms of authentication. One is what you know, such as a password or a PIN. The second thing is what you have, so possession of a device in your hands. And the third means authentication is who you are, like a biometric. The password alone is the highest risk way of of authenticating, and that that leads to phishing and and, and data breaches and all the nefarious things we see on the web today. Any form of two-factor authentication is better than passwords alone. What I want to note, though, is that not all two-factor authentication is great. Things like getting SMS messages, so a text message with a pin code, is both inconvenient but also can be spoofed and is not a foolproof means of second-factor authentication.
9: NIST even restricted the use of one-time passwords being sent over SMS as a means of two-factor authentication. For something to be two-factor versus two-step, the authentication elements must come from two separate categories. An example of two-factor authentication is withdrawing money from an ATM. First, you insert your bank card, something that you possess, and then you are asked for a pin, something that you know. Biometrics are the newest form of authentication and have risen in popularity thanks to smartphones that include fingerprint readers and face-scanning cameras. Meanwhile, digital assistants like Siri, Alexa, and Google Assistant have advanced voice recognition technologies. In fact, a number of banks, including Chase and Barclays, now allow their customers to verify their identity using voice biometrics. When customers call in, their voice is automatically matched to a previously recorded voice print that's made up of more than 100 characteristics such as pitch, accent, and shape of your mouth. One organization that's been at the forefront of bringing two-factor authentication standards to the masses is the FIDO Alliance. The FIDO Alliance, which stands for Fast Identity Online, is a consortium of more than 250 companies who are working together to reduce the industry's reliance on passwords by standardizing two-factor authentication.
11: This past year, uh, we saw it become a core Android and Windows operating systems, meaning that any Android 7 or later handset, or any Windows 10 machine, you can leverage actual onboard biometrics, that a face scanner or whatever it might be, to log in rather than using passwords.
12: Other
9: companies that work with the FIDO Alliance include eBay, Facebook, Twitter, PayPal, and Bank of America. The government has adopted the standard. FIDO's big advantage over other standards comes down to where it stores users' personal information.
11: The core problem with passwords is that they reside on a server. The problem with that is that when it sits on a server, they could be stolen uh, by a hacker. Additionally, someone can impersonate you quite easily, um, either by phishing your credentials uh, or by buying your credentials off the dark web and then trying to stuff them into the account. Everything Fido does is local on the device, which does a couple things. One is it's easier, but two, perhaps most important, it protects your privacy, right? So you can always change a password if it's hacked, um, but you really can't take your face back. You can't take your fingerprint back. So it's very important that companies that are using biometrics use local match biometrics, meaning match on device, which is what Fido supports to protect user privacy and, and have enhanced user experience.
9: Microsoft has been hinting about getting rid of the password for
12: years. Now Let me move over to my Surface uh, Pro 4. I don't know if you noticed what happened. It recognized that I was just standing in front of the computer and it logged me in. And this is the power of Windows Hello, where it does the face recognition and logs you right in. I mean, think about one of the biggest issues of security is passwords. So one of the things that we are working on is a world where passwords are not going to be the ones that you know get hacked, but you really have other biometrics that really help us secure our computing interfaces.
9: Microsoft sees 6.5 trillion hacking incidents per year. That's why 90% of its employees can now log into the corporate network without a password. We are on a mission to be passwordless and we've built passwordless technology into the OS. And we tell customers, of course, that it's much more secure than actual passwords because about 70% of phishing attacks today still are caused by past stolen passwords. So what we recommend is that customers use biometrics. At Microsoft, we use Windows Hello for Business. I look at my computer to log on in the morning. That's how I authenticate. If I'm on my phone, I'm using my thumbprint, we don't see our passwords anymore because that is the, the user and the password are the weakest link in your security system. Microsoft introduced Windows Hello to customers in 2015, with its devices running Windows 10. Windows Hello allowed users to ditch the password and log into their devices with just their face, fingerprint, or pin. Like FIDO, Microsoft has said it stores user biometrics on the device instead of on a cloud. In 2018, Microsoft announced that it would support logging into Windows 10 with FIDO2-compatible devices, such as hardware keys made by Yubico. We've been on a mission to eliminate passwords altogether.
8: And uh, you know we're focusing on passwordless uh, ex- uh, login experience that's both secure and user-friendly. And we've seen a lot of success with
9: our Authenticator app for, for consumers. And so we'll bring that uh, to Azure AD. Microsoft Authenticator is an app that allows users to take advantage of two-factor authentication on any device, not just those running Windows 10. Alex Simmons, vice president of Microsoft's Identity Division, said in a tweet that the company has more than 80 million unique monthly users that sign in with a passwordless method. Apple's been encouraging the use of biometric authentication since it came out with Touch ID on the iPhone 5S back in 2013. The company called Touch ID the gold standard for consumer device biometric protection until it introduced Face ID on the iPhone X in 2017.
4: And the data for Touch ID has been One in 50,000, meaning that the chance that a random person could use their fingerprint to unlock your iPhone has been about one in 50,000 and it's been great. So what are the similar statistics for face ID? One in a million.
9: Back in 2016, Apple also introduced auto unlock, a feature for Mac OS.
13: Today, when you first approach your Mac to use it, the experience is something like this. You open it up. You're confronted with a password field and then you type and then maybe mistype and then retype your password and then you're in and using your Mac. But you know, for many of us, we already have a device securely authenticated to our wrists that already knows who we are and could tell our Mac. And so then when we open our Mac, it could be a little bit more like this.
9: In its guidelines to app developers, Apple stresses that apps should support biometric authentication whenever possible and that apps should only ask for a username and password as a fallback if the first method fails. Google has also been working to make passwords a thing of the past. The company has required its employees to use physical security keys since early 2017 and has seen a huge reduction in phishing. In August of 2018, the company released Titan to consumers. Titan is a physical key that allows users to take advantage of two-factor authentication on their computers or smartphones. In 2019, Google announced that phones running Android 7 would all come with a built-in security key using Bluetooth. A few months later, Google extended that function to iOS devices, meaning that iPhone and iPad users could now use their secondary Android smartphones as a security key whenever logging into their Google accounts on an iOS device. While Microsoft's Windows 10 devices and Google's new Android devices are FIDO2 certified, Apple has been slower to adopt the standard in its products Even though Touch ID and Face ID made biometric authentication the norm for unlocking our phones, Apple's devices are still not FIDO certified. But Apple is making strides.
11: Of late, Apple's been supporting FIDO technology both on iOS and on macOS, so the latest versions of their operating system support FIDO, meaning that if you're accessing a website that supports FIDO on an Apple device, you'll be able to leverage FIDO authentication as well.
9: The Department of Justice has also been moving away from password authentication. The agency adopted a single sign-on method back in two thousand and
8: seventeen. One of the reasons why passwords persist is that they are universal; they can be used by anyone. There are there are no limitations. There's no special hardware requirements. You don't have to have a certain kind of phone or a certain kind of laptop. Anyone can use passwords.
11: There are a few key challenges to you know, really moving beyond being dependent on passwords. Uh, one of them is technical, right? And that's what FIDO has been seeking to address. We've now created the technical standards that are web standards. For authentication, that does not depend on password. Another challenge is behavioral. We've been trained with this risky way of authenticating using passwords. We'll have to be untrained to, to use you know, simpler but new mechanisms for logging in. So I think there'll be some behavioral changes um, that, that need to you know take place. Some education. You know, the good news is you know these are changes that, for the better and for the simpler. And so we think that people will embrace these changes um, at the same time as the new technologies roll to market to enable as collectively on the whole to move beyond passwords.
9: Experts say that getting rid of the password will be a long journey, especially when it comes to getting people to ditch their bad habits.
11: The consumer
8: approaches will be very much opt-in. In other words, if users actually want strong authentication, companies will be able to provide them. But just because it's available doesn't mean that every customer is going to go for it. You may now need to start collecting information about the user, like a mobile phone number that you need to use to communicate with them, and perhaps users don't want to provide that information or they're reluctant to on the consumer side I believe uh, password will be slower uh, to get rid of which also means that the risk of breaches of consumer sites will persist for the foreseeable future.
2: Okay my listeners dear you it okay. Every day it does seem to get strange and strange and stranger. (sighs) So we move on to the next point of issue, the next topic. The next topic is called, how the rich get richer. Yeah, how the rich get richer. But I'm going to put my own little twist to it. All the rich, all the world, yeah. I'm gonna put my own little twist it. All the rich get richer. Meanwhile, every day they cry. There is no resources. Food supplies getting shorter. Everything is dwindling. But yet, still, their money and bank account and assets. Is not doing. Can't my people see? This is all part of a tree card trick. Playing brains. Brain game with the people brain. So, with no further delay, we continue.
1: A, B, C, D. A, B, C, D. In the morning, brush your teeth.
14: Never before has there been as much money as there is today, and rarely has money been so cheap, and yet the central banks continue to pump money into the world. We are being flooded by trillions of dollars and euros.
2: Okay, pause for a few seconds, my listeners. You notice the report said there have never been no other time in the history of human where there is so much money and so much money being printed and pumped in the system all over the world but yet still them cry every day them have no money to help the people and to deliver promises to the people they even said food supply is getting shorter money is dwindling, water supply is getting shorter so They plan up and scheme up ways and means of depopularization the world.
14: Never before has there been as much money as there is today. And rarely has money been so cheap. And yet the central banks continue to pump money into the world. We are being flooded by trillions of dollars and euros. The...
7: It can't go on forever. It's a ticking time bomb.
14: It's never been easier for investors to get their hands on cheap money. Running up debts is practically free of charge.
12: Organisations are just borrowing large amounts of money from each other and then using that to make money by lending it to others who are using that to lend it to others.
14: A snowball system that lets the rich become even richer. Savers, on the other hand, are losing billions every year thanks to low interest rates. If you just open a savings account, it's almost like burning money. This deluge of money has created deals worth billions. Companies are bought and sold for vast sums because loans are cheap. The employees become the pawns of the speculators.
7: The question is, where's all this money going?
14: We're in Bad Bordendorf in Western Germany. This couple faces the same dilemma as many others. What to do with their savings in this world of low interest rates? Heinz Eich, a recently retired court bailiff, knows all about money and debts. His life insurance policy is due to pay out soon. How should he invest the money? In a house? They've already got one. There's a lot at stake for the cycling enthusiast. He and his wife want security in old age as well as a good time.
7: I was hoping that after the payout, I'd be able to invest the money again and earn interest which could be added to our pension. But that plan isn't going to work out.
14: Karl Heinz has always led a modest life. He always stayed away from investments that paid high returns but were risky. He never thought it would come to this. He doesn't know what to do with interest rates this low, and nor do his friends.
7: Some have told me they won't keep their money in a bank account anymore. Instead, they'll deposit it as physical cash in a safe.
14: It's barely worth going to the bank. Interest on savings is almost zero at just 0.01%. That means that he gets one cent for every 100 euros per year. What's happening with his money? People are worried, says the director of the local branch of Volksbank, Elmar Schmitz. Although there hasn't been a run on the safe deposit boxes yet, there have been more requests to keep money in cash or
4: gold.
7: We've seen a continuing fall in interest rates over the past eight years. I'd need a crystal ball to tell you whether it'll stay like this for long. I think we'll have this situation for another two or three years. After that, things will change again. But we won't have the interest rates we had 10 or 20 years ago.
13: The manager
14: knows who he blames for these low interest rates. The European Central Bank. The remit of the ECB is clear, price stability. It uses the base rate as its tool to deliver that, and it's been lowering the base rate steadily ever since the financial crisis, down to zero. Savers are left by the wayside, but countries with high levels of debt, such as Greece, are able to get their hands on cheap money. So too can ailing banks in southern Europe. The cheap money is supposed to fuel growth, By buying government bonds, the ECB has pumped additional trillions of euros into the markets. Otherwise, the system would face potential collapse. The price of all this is a deluge of money. The money has to go somewhere, into shares and real estate, which continue to rise in price. The result is a massive concentration of wealth right at the top. Bill Gates, the world's richest man, has a fortune of 65 billion euros. That's the market value of his shares. To compare, the total value of all of the world's cash is less than 100 times that amount, 5 trillion euros. The value of all goods and services created every year around the world is 75 trillion euros. That's the real economy. The world's debts are far higher than that states businesses and private individuals all have debts a world living on credit 705 trillion that's the value of all derivatives the speculative financial bets on the future they've got almost nothing to do with real goods anymore to recap this is the fortune of bill gates What happens when there's too much money in the world? Economist Max Otter says this deluge of cheap money isn't just flooding the big banks. He sees low interest rates as the symptom of a massive sickness in the global financial system. What's more, cheap money endangers the entire economy and promotes increasing levels of debt. He says... Those who believe that, with the financial crisis of 2008 receding, things are now better again, are much mistaken.
7: This influx of money is extremely dangerous. It's slow, but at some point the dam will burst, and then we'll be in a huge crisis.
14: The biggest danger is that this flood of cheap money will split our society. It moves money from the bottom upwards, he says,
5: a gigantic redistribution machine.
7: Low interest rates are demanded by many economists. They mean that states can borrow on the cheap. States can take on more debt. It also means the rich can do the same and often without any liability if they default. If I, as one of the super-rich, buy a business, then I'm only liable to the extent of my holding, not with the rest of my wealth. That's a blatant injustice compared to middle-class families and regular people with home construction laws.
14: This flood of money doesn't just save states and banks. It also favors the rich who use this cheap money to buy shares, companies and real estate with rapidly rising values. While the financial investments of ordinary people lose value.
7: The middle classes have savings and insurance policies. And these investments are the losers in a low interest rate world. Poorer citizens suffer because real estate prices are going up and therefore rents too.
14: London, the world's largest financial center, illustrates very clearly the effect of this monetary deluge. Trillions are traded here. 300,000 employees in the financial sector are trying to turn money into even more money. London's own real estate prices are skyrocketing. All the major banks have offices here. This is where the money of the world's rich is invested. Roman Borisovich knows the the scene well. There are neighbourhoods where millionaires are being pushed out by billionaires. Borisovich is fighting against a sell-off of the City of London to speculators. Together with colleagues, he has researched the anonymous owners of several properties. As a former banker, he's familiar with price developments.
13: Well, these are used houses, and uh, again, depending on the size, it's difficult to say how deep they are, but uh, anywhere between three uh, to five, maybe five to seven million. On this, on this in this particular area, five to seven million pounds. Now, if you think about muse houses, this is uh, a family place. Just think about what kind of family can afford to buy a house for three to five, for even for five to seven million pounds.
14: The expensive houses are all speculative objects and empty. London belongs to investors who don't live in the city. Roman Borisovich discovered that this townhouse was sold to a Ukrainian billionaire for 66 million pounds. On paper, the mansion is owned by a shell company.
13: Right now, there is an excess of 40,000 properties in London that are owned by anonymous offshore corporations, meaning that we don't know who the owners are. They could be decent people, they could be mafia. Therefore, we suspect that a lot of this money that came to London, that exploded prices here, is actually of dirty origin.
14: There's construction underway everywhere. Speculating with real estate is the big game in town trillions of euros from Russians, Germans, Chinese and Indians have poured into London.
13: From socio-economical perspective it is not sustainable. You cannot have a city where residents and workers cannot uh, cannot live. You know, this this is a uh, this is what the problem with bubbles is that nobody knows when they're going to burst.
14: But London doesn't have a monopoly on real estate bubbles. They now exist in cities around the world.
7: If a real estate bubble were to burst, sure, it would hit the wealthy who are invested there. But they have a diverse investment portfolio. They seize opportunities around the world. If the real estate bubble in Munich were to burst, they'll be in Rio or Tokyo. They can act globally, but the middle class can't.
14: As seen in the financial crisis of 2008, the middle class is hit, while the rich get richer in times of boom and bust. Not much has changed. The minor regulations introduced into the financial sector aren't very tangible here in London. The speculators are looking for new ways to make more money in the world's number one financial centre. Many transactions are now taking place in the shadow banking system. The bonuses for lucrative deals are as plentiful as ever. And Brexit will see the regulations relaxed even further. The show must go on. Alf Townsend has lived through it all. He's been driving a taxi for 54 years, chauffeuring bankers and brokers around the city. Dealing in the world's trillions has become the trump card of the British economy, he says, optimistically.
7: Beneficial to London. I think it's uh, there's people who invest wherever, wherever, whatever part of the world they come from. If they want to invest their money in the city, that's good for uh, the uh, British
4: economy. Yeah,
14: he too has profited, but in exchange, Alf has to live far outside the city centre. A million pounds for a single room apartment, no ordinary local can afford that.
7: There's not many Londoners, apart from us old people, who still live in London. Most of them have have sold their houses, as I was saying earlier, bought their houses off the council, made a fat profit, sold it, and moved out to a suburban um, hideaway, yeah?
14: Some leave the city entirely and forever. Geraint Anderson was one of London's financial stars. He now lives in Wales. He paid the same for his farm as he would have to pay for a tiny single-room apartment in downtown London. But that's not the only reason why he came here. He's had enough of the financial excesses.
12: The city is full of greedy, ruthless, clever people. And if they put a bit more regulation, a little bit more compliance, some restrictions... These guys work out how to game the system to make sure that it benefits them.
14: Today, he writes novels and screenplays about the financial world. He used to earn a few hundred thousand pounds a year. He didn't care who the trades hurt. That's a few years ago now. But nothing has changed, says Anderson. The system rewards those who make fat deals at the expense of others.
12: I make lots of strange gambles, incredible reckless decisions, but they come good. Then I make huge amounts of money. If they go bad, maybe I lose my job. But that's the only downside. So this is what is called an asymmetrical risk. It encourages short-term gambling.
14: Anderson is certain that the financial system will keep growing and sprawling. The prospects of big profits, the low interest rates, the deluge of money. The former financial insider believes these elements make for an explosive mix.
12: The Ponzi system that exists is such that organisations are just borrowing large amounts of money from each other and then using that to make money by lending it to others who are using that to lend it to others, which means that you have a a system where ultimately no one's really got the money that backs up all the money that's being lent out subsequent
2: okay so for all of my listeners who are tuning in and listening and does and does not pick up what he's saying for example i will make it clearer. what he's trying to say is they just keep the money in their circle okay yeah they just keep the money concentrated right in their circle right in their clan World conspiracy.
12: The, um, when that system comes crashing down, then it's good night.
14: A tax on speculative financial transactions could slow this merry-go-round. However, this financial transactions tax would need to be introduced globally. But even the small-scale version with just 10 EU states failed after years of negotiations, even though German finance minister Wolfgang Schäuble personally pushed for this tax. But Britain was against it, and will be even more against it in the future. London, as a financial centre, would suffer. That's most regrettable, because this tax would be the necessary surgery for the sick financial system. The ECB and other central banks flooding the world with cheap money isn't a cure. It's just pain relief, and in the long run it has serious side effects. The entire setup is a system that keeps saving itself temporarily, but at some point it will inevitably fall apart. Until then, it exacerbates the enormous injustice that already exists. Those who have benefit. A handful of super rich individuals own as much as the poorer half of the world's population can buy.